welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 27th episode of this podcast, recorded on Wednesday, August 30. Thank you to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. In the almost three years that I've been writing Original Jurisdiction, I've done many profiles and interviews. And the most read of all these profiles is my story about Amy Chua, the Duff Professor of Law at Yale Law School, but better known to the world as the Tiger Mother. Her 2011 memoir, Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, was a runaway international bestseller that was translated into 30 languages. As you'd expect from an education-obsessed Tiger Mom, Chua has serious academic chops. She graduated from Harvard College and Law School, where she served as an executive editor of the Harvard Law Review, the first Asian-American to serve as an officer. After clerking on the D.C. Circuit and practicing at Cleary Gottlieb, she entered academia, and for the past 22 years, she has been a professor at Yale Law School. I've known Amy for years, so in our conversation, I wasn't afraid to go there. In addition to talking about her excellent new novel, The Golden Gate, we discussed various Yale Law School controversies, including Dinner Party Gate, Protest Gate, and the sexual harassment allegations against her husband, fellow YLS professor Jed Rubenfeld. We also covered hot-button issues in the news, including free speech, intellectual diversity, and affirmative action. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Amy Chua. Amy, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, David. So congratulations on The Golden Gate. It is a fantastic read. I think I finished it in maybe two days. It's a real page turner. But first things first, I am curious, is Chua the original pronunciation of your name? I've heard you say it that way on other podcasts, but I know sometimes immigrants or descendants of immigrants change the name. Like, is that the original pronunciation? Oh, my God. It is so mangled. So my original last name in Mandarin is Tsai, just like Joe Tsai. It's a very common name. but. Because my family is from the Fujian province, we don't speak Mandarin. We speak the Fujian dialect. So Thai in our dialect is Chua, you know, and then they went to the Philippines. They went to the Philippines and then this Hokkien thing got Spanish-sized into (laughs) Chua. And then the Spanish person got English-sized when we came here. So it's like, I don't even care what people call me, honestly, because that last name is so far from what it originally was. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, that's a great segue into what I was going to ask you about. I usually begin by asking my guests for a little bit of background about themselves. And I know that your parents were originally living in the Philippines, although you're of Chinese ancestry. So tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Yeah, we probably have some similarities. So my parents were originally, their families are from the Fujian province, but at very young age, their families moved to the Philippines. They lived through Japanese occupation there. My dad was the black sheep in his family, absolutely hated his family business. So my parents eloped to huh. the United States as poor, penniless graduate students in 1960. I was born in Champaign, Illinois in 1962, the oldest, bossy, oldest, you know, overconfident of four daughters. 
And I spent my first seven years in West Lafayette, Indiana, pretty much the only Asian kid in the neighborhood and the school. So things are really different now. Then when I was eight, we moved. This is a typical academic path. My dad got a job teaching at Berkeley. So we picked up and moved to Berkeley. I went to a bunch of public schools. I went to Elstree High School, came out east in 1980 to Harvard, where I was completely in shell shock. You know, just I had never heard of Exeter or Andover, didn't know what a boarding school was. Went to Harvard Law School. We can talk about that later. Was not a natural at all. It really mostly applied to law school just because I I really didn't want to go to medical school. <laughs> and then I clerked, you know, for a year. And then I I struggled. I did a couple years on Wall Street at Cleary Gottlieb and was not particularly talented. <laughs> Tried to write my first novel there. And then huh. in a just by through a series of just honestly failures and serendipitous things, ended up turning some securities assignment into what became my first Columbia Law journal article, the privatization, nationalization cycle. And, you know, I won't go into it now, but I taught at Duke for a few years, got tenure there, loved it because my husband was at Yale. It was a really long commute and I had two kids. So we visited a bunch of places and I started at Yale in 2000. And all of this is before, you know, I was just like kind of doing my my own little lawn development, weird little niche. And I published a couple of books that were mostly on ethnic conflict and foreign policy. And then, of course, in 2011, I wrote this. I didn't expect it to be so controversial, but I wrote the notorious Battle Hymn <laughs> of the Tiger Mother thing. Um, so actually, let me ask you about that. So okay. you are most famous or infamous as the Tiger Mother, the original TM. What about your <laughs> own upbringing? I think I've heard you say in the past that your parents were the original tiger parents. Oh my God, no comparison. No comparison. My parents were crazy strict. <laughs> you know, I I actually, the Tiger Mom book is supposed to be a little tongue in cheek and people like you who, you know, have somewhat parallel upbringings often get it. Like I've had Nigerian American students, Cuban American students saying, oh my God, I thought that was so funny. So it's a little tongue in cheek in my own case. Like when I said no play dates, no sleepovers, you know, no school plays. But my parents, they were serious when they said that. It was it was no humor. And they weren't doing it to be mean. They just didn't know this country. It's like, you know, I remember my mom, when I asked to go to a sleepover, she was like, started crying, you know, when she was like, <laughs> what, what? I don't understand. You know, we, we have a bed here for you. Why, why do you want to go to a stranger's house? So yeah, they had very high expectations and straight A's and all that stuff, kind of narrow in their expectations of what counted as success, but very, very good parents. I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, this tiger parenting thing. I've talked to a lot of students for whom it really, really didn't work, but my parents somehow always managed to convey unconditional love. And in particular, I was like daddy's girl. So even though he was super, super strict, you know, he was like blowing up my head. So like I always, (laughs) I had a lot of confidence instilled in me as well. Well, so obviously there are parenting work. You went to Harvard for two degrees. But let me ask you about a particular brass ring that people often grasp for. So you're well known as an expert on clerkships. You have helped many students over the years get clerkships, especially minority and first generation students. Word on the street is that in the last cycle, you placed around 50 students into clerkships, which might be a record. I think it's twice as many as the second highest professor at Yale. So after Harvard Law, you yourself clerked for Chief Judge Patricia Wald on the D.C. Circuit. And back in the day, because I've been tracking this for decades now, she was a huge feeder judge. And two of your co-clerks, 
Paul Engelmeyer and Steve Higginson both went on to clerk for the court. They're both now federal judges. So what about you? Did you want to clerk for the Supreme Court? This is going to sound funny, but I I was so in over my head. <laughs> I was not a natural law student. How did you end up working for the D.C. Circuit? Yeah, here's one good thing about tiger parenting. I can work psychotically hard, you know, and, <laughs> and, and hard work goes a long, long way. I don't know if you know this about me. I never spoke once in law school. I never went to any office hours. I got tongue-tied. I mean, I can't stop talking now, it seems, but that's the kind of law student I was. So, you know, I worked really hard. I did well enough. And so I'm sure I applied to the Supreme Court, but I was so much the worst clerk. And I say that with pride because Paul Engelmeyer and Steve Higginson on SDNY and the Fifth Circuit are two of the most brilliant minds I know. And I think it was pretty clear. I remember they were doing like big cases. There was the Oliver North Iran-Contra case, and Steve had some huge thing. I remember doing this administrative law case on soil. It was like involving (laughs) the subway system. And so, yeah, like, you know, I also tell my students, despite my crazy reputation, all this clerkship stuff, I am one of the few professors at Yale I didn't love my clerkship. I was so honored to be there. I loved my judge. I was terrified of her. She was old school, not at all nurturing. But, you know, I didn't really feel I was naturally good at it. It didn't really help my career. I didn't want to be a litigator. Hmm. I, I did it kind of for the gold star purposes. So so I always tell a lot of students, like, think about it. You know, huh. like, okay. it wasn't fun for me at all. And you went on to do transactional work, right? You weren't a litigator. Yeah, I wasn't too good at that either. <laughs> no, I, I highly doubt this, Amy, but... <laughs> I, I, yes, I avoided litigation and oral arguments and that stuff like the plague, and I was much better at the transactional side. Well, here's one thing I know you're good at. Congratulations on the Golden Gate. It is a page turner. It's getting great reviews and buzz, and I'll link to some of that. But for folks who are not familiar with it, can you tell us a little bit about the book? Yes, so it's a historical murder thriller situated in the Bay Area in 1944. I mentioned that I grew up in the Bay Area. And basically, there's a lot of law in it. On the very first page of the book, the grandmother from one of San Francisco's wealthiest and most established families is told by the district attorney that one of her three granddaughters is a murderer, but they don't know which one. So that's kind of the premise. And you know, one of the most fun things is, is there are real historical characters. There's like Madame Chiang Kai-shek is in this book. Nobody knows why she lived in Berkeley, California in 1943 to 44. And I spun a whole thing around that. The Claremont Hotel, where the murders take place, there is actually a real life yep. ghost story. Huh. A little girl was found dead in the laundry chute in the 30s. So I worked that in. But that's the premise of the book. So it's interesting. And by the way, I really enjoyed all of the historical stuff. And we'll get to that in just a sec. I've stayed at the Claremont. It's a beautiful old hotel. I was fascinated by some of the figures you drew upon, you know, how you wove non-fictional real life figures into the fiction. I, I saw your very interesting author's note. But as you mentioned, this is your first novel and your other books, you've written several books, were all nonfiction. I know you mentioned earlier that you did do some fiction early on, but what led you to switch genres or to return to fiction as a genre? When I was little, back to this tiger parenting thing, we weren't allowed to do a lot of super fun things. You know, you had to come straight home. But as a result, I was a huge bookworm. My favorite thing to do was to go to the El Cerrito Public Library and I would come back just only with novels. I don't think I ever read a nonfiction book huh. back then. You know, every single Nancy Drew book, you know, 
than every single, I get the Christie book. So that was kind of my first love. And when I was trying to get myself out of Wall Street, I actually tried to write a novel and I just couldn't pull it together. I just couldn't, I couldn't develop the plot. So do you have it in a drawer somewhere or something? It's horrible. <laughs> you know, because I think it's, I tell my students, like I, I had a lot of ideas on all this atmospheric stuff, but the plot really is unsurprisingly very important. And so what happened is through serendipity, I got very lucky. As you know, the books I write are kind of not traditional legal doctrine books. You know, they're more about like the link between markets, democracy, and the rule of law and all this stuff. So I kind of got lucky with these foreign policy books. And then the Tiger Mom thing took me in a totally different direction. The genesis of that was really just the rebellion of my difficult 13-year-old. <laughs> and then this idea, it hit me about three years ago. I was visiting my parents. My parents, luckily, are 87 years old and still alive and doing well in Berkeley. And this plot idea just hit me. With all the twists, I won't give it away, but yep. this grandmother with these three granddaughters, one of whom is the murderer, and with all these twists... And I just uh, ran it by my nephews and daughters, like, what do you think of this? You know, and then COVID hit. And so suddenly, you know, I'm not the type to bake, I wish, you know, to garden or do sourdough, you know, baking or something. So I was like, I am stuck at home. I'm going to try this. And it was difficult. I got a lot of rejections. It was really fun. It's much more liberating than doing kind of nonfiction work. But I will say that I got stuck. I kept trying to write it like a law review article. Like I did a lot of source sites. I wanted to stick to the historical detail and I, I actually had to kind of force myself to just kind of let go a little bit. I was my agent who said, you know what? It's great that you want to get everything right, but it's not that important because this mm -hmm. is ultimately a work of fiction and you can use your imagination. But, you know, actually, I'll push back a little in the sense that I was really impressed by all of the rich historical detail in the book. I think it's one of the best parts of the book. I feel Thank that the you. book is not just a novel, but in some ways it's like a history of California, not in a boring way, in a fascinating way. California sometimes feels almost like a character in the book. Thank you. How did you go about researching this, though, and making sure everything was right? Because your author's note is pretty extensive. You researched it like a nonfiction book. I did. I think sometimes it can be a crutch so that, because like, oh, I'm still researching. I don't have to write because I'm a writer's blog. You know, I had like stacks and stacks of books. First, I'll say that when you grow up in a place, it's embarrassing how much you don't know about the history, right? So hmm. I grew up in the Bay Area. And I would see signs like naval base or, you know, this, but like, I didn't care. I didn't know anything. So for example, it was just unbelievably exciting to learn all the stuff about the Bay Area. I stupidly did not know that after Pearl Harbor, when the Japanese essentially took out our Navy, did you know this? Like the, the Bay Area overnight practically became really the largest shipbuilding center in no. history, right? Yeah. No idea. Right. Because we had no ships, right? And it was too hard to get them from New York. So suddenly, like Richmond and Berkeley and Oakland and Kaiser Shipyards, which I would pass every day. So they're like churning out a battleship every two days, right? And it made so much sense when I later realized. And this is actually how California looks the way it does. You know, I didn't know this. I didn't know because I went to a very diverse school that actually most African-Americans came during this period. Like it was this huge explosion. Suddenly there were jobs. And people were pouring in from all over the country. So that's when, you know, the Bay Area's population exploded. And, you know, also horrifying. I always think of Berkeley as like the most liberal place on the planet. When I was researching this, the most racist place, basically, uh, until okay. like the 70s. 
You know, even the whole neighborhood where my parents live now, racial restrictions, it's on my parents' house. Like basically all Caucasians. And Berkeley was bad. And then to learn like, you know, I was so fascinated about Mom Chung. Do you remember? Yes, yes. Anyway, she is basically the first, I think, Chinese-American women doctor in all of the United States. I don't know. How did I never hear about her? She's also almost certainly was gay. You know, she dressed like a man. And she also had these soirees for like Hollywood stars like John Wayne and Admiral Nimitz was one of her pallbearers. Yes, like, I remember this is that like detail. Incredible. Yeah. She and would Reagan, these... she treated Reagan, I think you mentioned. Yes. Right. So she's in my neighborhood. She's like this amazing role model like figure. She goes to like these bohemian nightclubs and I'd literally never heard about her. So huh. so the process was like I read a lot. I got the lawyer in me, like I I would, you know, just have all these books, like the three volume history of the East Bay by Ian Tolles. I mean, I read the huh. whole thing, you know. Wow. So and a lot of biographies. I read five biographies of Madame Chiang Kai-shek. So wow. yeah, it was fun. It well, was fun. Let me let me ask you this then. You've written this novel. It's a very rich novel and it has all this history in it, but you also have a day job as a Yale Law School professor. And as someone who has been supposedly working on a novel myself, but not really, how did you find the time and how long did it take you? I know that the pandemic helped you, I guess, in that regard, but you had the idea three years ago, I guess? Yes, it was about three years ago. I would say the pandemic was everything, you know, because, you know, you could barely do office hours, like, you know, faculty meetings were truncated. Mm-hmm. But I am, and I'm guessing you are too, I am to a fault a hyperdisciplined person. My brain fizzles out by about noon. So I organize <laughs> it. So, you know, I do all of my hard writing thinking in the morning and I try to do, you know, less brain intensive stuff later. I honestly can only write if on a good day, like a couple paragraphs a day. So if you think about it, it really takes persistence, right? Because if you write a couple paragraphs a day after two years, if you do it every single day, (laughs) but I had to start all over a couple of times. There was one time when my agent she gave me all these criticisms and I turned it around really fast like this, you know, the kind of type A person I am and sent it back to her. And then she called me three months later and said, okay, Amy, these changes made it worse. <laughs> uh, you're too much a high achiever. You just keep wanting to like, please. And it's this is not, I am not going to read the next round of changes for eight months. And this killed me. I was like, what? Huh. She was like, I want you to read. I want you to do this. So the process was was kind of wiggly and strange with a lot of false starts. And yeah, so okay. I think discipline and perseverance, like for everything else. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. So Tiger Mother was a huge international bestseller. There's a big printing of The Golden Gate, I think 150,000 copies. Are you nervous about how well the book is going to do? And do you think that it will be as big as Tiger Mother? No, (laughs) I'm very nervous, but my expectations are very scaled down. I know this is my first attempt. I know I'm usually like, you know, kind of a type A person, but for me, this was just fun. The challenge was like, can I do this? Can I pull this together? And I just want enough people to think it's a good story and have some fun with it. You know, I have a really good book tour. I'm trying to shift my mindset you know, talk about stories. And and like, I have no idea what it's going to be like to do these bookstore tours. I mean, I was at Tiger Mom. I was there like fending off like haters. (laughs) And so we'll see. But I think I've got a pretty realistic and mature attitude to this one. Knock on wood. We'll see. This podcast is being sponsored by Next Firm. 
If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. So you do many things outside of the academy. You have this novel. Now, look, I first heard about you when you were still deeply enmeshed in the legal academy. When I was at Yale Law School, I believe this was the year or a year that you had a piece coming out. And so I remember people were editing it. And so that's the first time I ever heard of Amy Chua. But now, of course, you are, you know, you're the most famous member of the faculty, but for things not related to legal scholarship. So some might wonder, has her attention wandered from the law? And in an interview with New York Magazine, some anonymous colleague of yours sort of sniffed that you were not an important scholar. So do you still care about being perceived as a serious legal scholar? That's a great question. You know, I am incredibly proud of the academic works I've done, but I think it's true. I am not a legal theorist, period. You know, I'm not somebody that is as dexterous and talented at doctrinal analysis. I'm honestly a little bit less interested in a lot of these big constitutional law questions. But I, you know, I do take issue with that statement. Like my first article, well, actually in the Yale Law Journal when you were there was called Markets, Democracy, and Ethnicity Towards a New Paradigm for Law and Development. And I would kind of push back and say, in a way, it was very important because I pointed out that all these rule of law initiatives that American lawyers were doing all over the world, Eastern Europe and China and Africa, we're going to transplant democracy and markets everywhere. I think it was important for me to point out that, you know, a lot of these countries have very different ethnic and social and religious structures than the United States. And some of these policies are going to not work and there's going to be backlash. And that first journal article actually was turned into World on Fire, which this is tooting my own horn. I was a nobody. And it did call the Iraq war correctly. It called Venezuela correctly. It called what happened in Russia correctly. It called what happened in Bolivia correctly. And it became a New York Times bestseller, which I mean, like for one day, you know, for like, but I, I do think it's important work, but I agree with them that that is not traditional legal scholarship. The last thing I'll say about that is I think I'm a really good legal teacher. I'm really proud of my contracts classes. I love teaching black letter doctrine. I think I can explain things. I believe you've won the teaching award multiple times yeah. at Yale and your classes are massively oversubscribed, I believe. They are. And I'm proud of that. Not so much the competition, but I, I think I can explain things really clearly, even like contracts. Okay. I've got the most brilliant contract. My colleagues, Ian Ayers and Alan Schwartz and, you know, whatever, you know, Yair Listigan, they write amazing tracks, law and economics contracts. And I just can't do that. And that's really true. It hats off to them. But I think I can teach a good contracts class. <laughs> and I yep. can also integrate the different contract theory. So, you know, I teach advanced contracts now and we're going to cover law and economics, but also sort of contract as promise and libertarian views, but also critical legal studies and critical race theory and feminist approaches to contracts. And it's really fun. So I, mm -hmm. I think I am a good legal pedagogue. But yeah, there's probably something true to that criticism. 
So your students love you, the students who have been mentored by you, who've taken classes with you. And so many of them, a couple of years ago, had to rally to your defense. There was a controversy we all know called Dinner Party Gate. You were accused of holding these drunken soirees with federal judges and Yale law students at the height of the pandemic. (laughs) And later, investigations by journalists from The New York Times and The New Yorker basically found that this was all fiction. So considering how totally divergent from reality this was, why were you accused in the first place? Where did this come from? Was this of whole cloth? You know, it's so weird. It really was the most Kafka-esque experience I've ever had. Now that I've had some distance, you know, for me, I'm just not a grudge holder. And I now actually think that a lot of it had to do with COVID, you know, because people were so freaking miserable. And I remember what happened to you, you know, and people were scared. And also a lot of our students, they, you know, were so, you remember the small group, like you're supposed to socialize and meet everybody. It never occurred to me, but right then those two classes, they didn't get to meet anybody. It was by Zoom. They didn't socialize. Everybody's wearing masks, so you can't even see what people look like. And there was a lot of paranoid stuff. And I had just come off this other controversy, you know, the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh. So I think there was a lot of anger about that, which I completely understand. Like, I honestly completely understand where that came from. So I do think it's weird because I do think it was invented. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think I believe in the system. People like you helped. It wasn't pleasant. But like, I feel like the truth kind of came out like the university, you know, there's no basis for anything. It's kind of behind me. So, you know, in the end, I, I feel kind of lucky. Like I love my students. My classes are seem to be back to normal. So mm-hmm. knock on wood, you know, watch, watch okay. something to happen tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting how you tie the pandemic to recent developments. I think that one thing I covered extensively on Original Jurisdiction, the March 2022 protest of Kristen Wagner of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which I think turned into a very unfortunate incident. I think in some ways that was a product of the pandemic because people weren't breaking bread with each other. People weren't seeing each other in the hallways. And then they basically had this whole craziness. And of course, Trap House Gate, I won't get into all of that. But let me ask you this. Does Yale Law School have a free speech problem? It's getting a lot better. But yeah, I mean, it's not just Yale Law School, but I, I mean- Yeah, honestly, David, it is so different teaching now than it was, you know, even like eight years ago, right? Like I used to love like having really provocative debates and say edgy things and just people, I mean, my student, J.D. Vance, his best friend, you know, one of his closest friends was a very liberal lesbian woman who they would fight all the time. Then everybody would go out for beers. So it's tense now and students are afraid to say what they really think. I think I've done a better job than many. Like I have this big banner on my syllabus that says, don't take this class basically, unless you know I'm committed to lively debate across every perspective. But like I have a lot of students now who will write me and they're afraid to say their view on a question in mm-hmm. class, but they will send me emails that ask me to read them anonymously. And honestly, this is a pretty good second best solution because at least it's a real view. <laughs> yes, yes. And I feel so bad that these brilliant, brave students are afraid to say these things that do not seem remotely controversial to me. But then at least you see I'm airing real views and I see other people nodding. And I got to tell you, it's getting better. Like okay. a little bit of leadership last year for the first time at the beginning of the semester, there was a statement about free speech that I wish it had come a little bit earlier, you know, three years sure. before. But it was, look, we're committed to not just free speech, but vociferous debate, but also self-help. Like instead of if you are offended by somebody, instead of 
immediately rushing to some administrator and toddling anonymously, try to work it out. And just this yesterday, there's another convocation speech that the dean gave that is just excellent. You should get it. It's amazing. Okay. It's like huh. it goes a step further. It says, we want you to disagree, you know, and you have to try to work it out. And this is the lifelines. So I think we're moving in the right direction. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I think you played a good role. I think you played <laughs> an important role. Honestly, well, I tr- I'm not just I, saying I, that. I, Try to help. But even if things have settled down in terms of protests and whatnot, and I know Kristen Wagner came back and there was no problem. I reported on that. It's true that I think the Yale Law School faculty is still overwhelmingly to the left. So does Yale Law have a problem with intellectual or ideological diversity? There is not very much ideological diversity. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true of all the top law schools? I, I think you're the expert Chicago on this. Chicago maybe is an exception, or Harvard has a few yeah. more conservatives than Yale, but you're right. You're right. It, it's, it's pretty interesting. I don't know how it got this way, right? I think most of these faculties are, you know the numbers better. It's got to be like the faculties, not just in law, but I think across these top universities must be like 90% Democrats, 90% liberals. Yes, I, I would say that I think the administration is working on hiring some conservatives. I I believe we have a couple of great offers out, but at the moment, no, at the moment, we don't have a single conservative constitutional law professor. The FedSoc students, they feel that all the time. And I would say that even in my classes, I think I have unusual diversity, intellectual diversity too. I get most of my students are going to be progressive and and a lot of them will be people of color just because of who I am, but I've got a big FedSoc block in there. But it's still, of course, they're a strong minority. So I think there's some work to be done there. I think some of these initiatives to get more at first-generation professionals and kind of class issues are helping a little bit. I I saw some of the stats. Yeah, you know, to try to get a little bit more. You know, I'm actually really, I love mentoring state school kids. I relate to them. I mean, I went to Harvard undergrad, but my whole background coming from a big public high school I just kind of gravitate towards people who just seem a little bit untraditional, like they don't fit in and they feel they sound funny when they talk. That's how I felt. Hmm. You know, I just feel like I can't talk like these other people. Everyone thinks I'm stupid. Huh, no, then that's interesting. And it makes sense to me now why you're known as a mentor for first generation students, because even though on the one hand you went to Harvard and your father was an academic, you did come from this unusual background, I guess. When I told my mom, again, that I was going to law school. I mean, it was, she She went into mourning. You know, yeah. she really, this is a long time ago. Asians were different back then, but for them, they had a terrible view. This is in the 80s about what lawyers were. You know, think about China and the Philippines and they wanted me to be a doctor. So, mm-hmm. and I, I was raised with kind of always defer to authority, listen to your elders. So when, you know, Professor Arita, terrifying, called on me and Socratic method and said, Ms. Chua, you know, what is your view of this opinion? I literally would have no thoughts. I would just be like, a judge wrote it. Like, it must be right, <laughs> you know? So it took a lot of work. And I just felt like, I know I did not sound smart. So I think I'm good at seeing students that other people, maybe other faculty might think, oh, this person's not very impressive. Yeah. But that I okay. feel like, wait, that is not the case. Like, I know it's buried in there. You just need to kind of find, sure. you know, find their voice. And so that's fun for me. So you've been a very dedicated member of the Yale Law School faculty. It's clear the love you have for the institution. But at the height of the various controversies, it was noted that you put your house in New Haven on the market. Were you (laughs) and Professor Rubenfeld, your husband, thinking of leaving Yale? Oh, gosh, that was a very spontaneous action. It had to do with, first of all, suddenly being an empty nester. 
And also this dinner party gate thing, which is like, oh, you know, all this controversy about dinner parties and just kind of feel like, oh, we're done with this. You know, I've got a lot of friends and other parts of the country and this big giant house. And then we're here with COVID and all this feeling very, I did feel very alienated and kind of alone. So we put the house on the market and then I don't know what happened. I think that COVID ended and then, you know, we just, you know, started being reintegrated and, you know, had friends over. So we took it off the market. And now the real estate guy is so mad. He's like, it's the perfect time to sell. You know, honestly, another thing that happened, David, is I, this is going to be not very interesting, but New Haven real estate does not appreciate. We have this very big, beautiful house that probably costs less than a one-bedroom New York apartment. <laughs> so for me to downsize here, I would actually have to spend more. You know, So Tony Krohman was the one that says, oh, this big empty house is going to be your pied de terre. So, so now we're here and I'm glad we made that decision. Okay. Okay. Good, good. So last year, this is shifting gears a little bit, Yale Law School made big news by withdrawing from the US News Law School rankings. With the benefit of hindsight, now that there's a little bit of distance on that, was that the right call by Dean Garkin? I think so. You know, I, I will be honest, David, I haven't been following this as closely as other people. So I'm not speaking as an expert. I didn't look at the way all these calculations were being done. I do remember that when I was very heavily involved with the clerkship committee, that for some reason, if you took a gap year and did a fellowship or did a clerkship, that didn't count as employment. So that seemed very unfair. It seemed like, wow, that's going to bias things. And, you know, why should we be penalized for helping our students get great public interest fellowships? Having said that, you know, I tend to be a little bit of a skeptic. Like I think everything is ultimately strategic. And I tend to, I think everybody's trying to stay on top in their own way. And of course, I would like to see Yale stay on top. So maybe this is just another way of staying on top. But, you know, we we actually have numerically, even though we pulled. So, so again, I'm saying, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head. I, I think Superficially, it feels like the right decision, but you know, there are just a lot of moving parts. Speaking of moving parts, affirmative action is this big topic in the news. And as we've mentioned, you're known as a mentor to many YLS students from underrepresented backgrounds. Are you concerned about diversity at YLS or other top schools in the wake of the Supreme Court's decisions in the Harvard and UNC affirmative action cases? I'm actually not so concerned. The dean just sent around the statistics for this incoming class, and they seem to be exactly the same as they always were with a, you know, I don't know, something like 57% woman and over 50 something percent people of color. So I think through, I, I just imagined, you know, personal essays and that there's, I, I, I just don't see that, that the statistics changing that quickly, but I could be wrong. You know, our admissions process is a little bit different than other people's. The faculty at Yale are very much involved. I think some percentage gets taken off the top and some percentage off the bottom, but then this big middle, I don't know, maybe 60% of the applications gets assigned to three random faculty members. And even without the ethnic identifiers, you know, people are going to write essays. And so in Yale's case, I don't really see that much change coming, but you know, who knows? You mentioned without the ethnic identifiers. I think someone told me this, but is it true that Yale doesn't have a box to check for race? Or is it the case that it removed the box after the affirmative action decisions? That I don't know. But when we get these applications, we always get the LSAC thing, and that always has the identifier. 
Oh, okay. So you do get yeah. that. So I guess it will depend on LSAC. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Whether you look for it now, I think it's, it was always there and there was always a code of like, these are the codes. So okay. I don't know about this, what they did after the decision. Okay. Well, we'll see because the decision only came down a few months ago. So this will be yeah. the first cycle under the new regime. So your husband, um, fellow ILS professor Jed Rubenfeld, he was investigated by the law school for these allegations of sexual misconduct. He was suspended. You were investigated, but cleared. I guess my question is, did that affect your marriage? Oh, it was rough. It was a rough, rough time and my for my two daughters too. And, you know, we survived it, David. You know, like I think every marriage is rough. And I think that a lot of the changes, the, the title line changes are, are definitely for the better. You know, these are important changes. It's good that we have a system. It was not at all pleasant going through it at a personal level. It was kind of horrible for my family. I also don't think the the process works perfectly every time. You know, in individual cases, I, I don't think the consequences are always necessarily fair. Or, But look, you know, I try to just put it behind us. You know, he's back teaching too. And, you know, I, I think that it's probably good that we don't have a lot of the kinds of behaviors that we saw from faculty when I was in law school. Like, I just kind of can't mm -hmm. believe, you know, when I think back. So overall, you know, it was very hard, but, you know, Knock on wood, so far we seem to we seem to still be a family. <laughs> okay. No, no, fair enough. So one last question before we go to the speed round of standardized questions. So you and Jed are a celebrity couple. I think some super fans might say you're sort of like the Beyonce and Jay-Z of the legal academy. Maybe your detractors would say you're sort of Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> but if you had to compare yourselves to a famous celebrity couple, who would it be? Oh no. <laughs> I can't think of any. I don't think of ourselves as a celebrity couple. I just feel like we're... Well, wasn't there um, a nickname for you, like Schubenfeld or Chuafeld or some kind of like, oh like, like Benefer? Yeah. Well, you know, I I would say that we are extreme. I can't think of an exact couple, but we are not that kind of couple that just agrees on everything. I would say that Jed and I, if, if you could think of a celebrity couple that just fights all the time, <laughs> you know, oh gosh, I don't want to be that Kellyanne Conway because they actually got divorced. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but like, no, we don't, we never agreed politically. You know, Jed was always very, very super left-wing, Foucault, deconstruction. And in law school, I was completely immigrant's kid, you know, just you know, wanted to claw my way onto the... Harvard Law Review, and we have a lot of different views about about everything, about race, about you know constitutional. I don't think we agree on most cases, so I can't think of a couple. But I would say that we are the kind of couple that, if we work, we're constantly butting heads. <laughs> what about if I compared you to the Clintons? You're both sort of like stars in your own right, but there's a lot of like complex stuff going on and a lot of drama. Maybe some Maybe. people would say there's some codependency. Like, what do you? What about the Clintons? I don't know. I don't feel that I'm that much. I like Killer Clinton a lot. I've met her, but she's great. But I don't feel that I'm quite okay. like her. I think I'm just too <laughs> reckless and spontaneous. And I make okay, my, those are not qualities people would describe Hillary with. <laughs> well, I make my mistakes more like the way Bill Clinton would make his mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. you've obviously been doing something right to be where you are. And so I really wish you good luck with the book. It's fantastic. But now let's turn to the final four questions, which are the same for all my guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? This can either be the practice of law or law as an abstract system. Loopholes. I hate loopholes. Okay. I talk about this in my class all the time. You know, whether it's like special purpose vehicles or just ways 
either arguments or just devices that circumvent these important policies and purposes and values behind the law that I think just like, you know, undermines the reputation of the entire legal community. Fair enough. And alas, loopholes are a permanent employment act for lawyers. But (laughs) what would you be if you were not a lawyer and law professor and novelist? Therapist, life coach. Okay. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. I know that even though you did not have drunken ragers with judges and law students, some students did come to you during the pandemic with personal issues. I like helping students. I feel like I'm really interested in people. I'm interested in psychology. And in a way, I felt that's actually what helps me to the extent that I do well, this clerkship stuff. It's like I can figure out what these hidden strengths of, of, of students are. And I also can understand the psychology of different judges. Like every judge mm-hmm. is looking for something different. Some yes. people want to self-replicate. Oh, I like articles editors because guess what? I was one. You know? yeah, yeah. And some people care about grades and some don't. So, you know, I think I like psychology. And I will say also, I have a couple of friends who are judges and they say that your letters are excellent, that you really do know the applicant and you also seem to know what the judge is looking oh, for. Thank you. I but take a lot of time. My third question is, speaking of time, how much sleep do you get each night? Six hours. Okay. That's, I guess, the borderline of, I guess, what they say. I'm a great sleeper. I guess just because I work so hard or I'm, I don't know, I've never had sleep problems. I fall asleep instantly. I've never had insomnia. It's really okay, weird. Good, good. I'm a very efficient sleeper. <laughs> <laughs> and then my last question is, any final words of wisdom, like career advice or life advice for my listeners? Always go for it. Never refrain from doing something because you're afraid you'll fail or that you'll afraid you'll be bad at or embarrass yourself. I mean, even somebody totally new. This is part of mentoring too. Like I do do all that clerkship stuff, but I actually mentor a lot of students who do alternative forms of writing, including memoirish things or fiction things. So I say, you know, it's just not that bad to to fail and get rejections. Like go for basically all the most valuable things that have happened to me in my life were originally things that I was almost too afraid to try. So I would say, just go for it. That is a great note to end on. Congratulations again on The Golden Gate. And thank you for joining me, Amy. So much fun, David. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Amy for joining me. She was once named by Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. And she is clearly one of the most fascinating figures in the legal world. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Hannon, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, and thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at davidlatt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, September 20. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.